For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them and the people will oppress one another. Everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Physicist and author Alan Lightman is a professor at MIT. He writes as he contemplates the day of his daughter's wedding. Here's what he says. It was a perfect picture of utter joy and utter tragedy. Because I wanted my daughter back as she was at age 10 or 20. As we moved together toward that lovely arch, other scenes flashed through my mind. My daughter in first grade holding a starfish as big as herself. Her smile missing a tooth. Now she was 30. I could see the lines in her face. He goes on to say it was really hard for him to accept that, for him and his daughter, and really for him to accept everything else because he goes on to say it all ends in nothingness. Utter joy and utter tragedy. Two very extreme emotions. The pain of loss, and the pain of gain, or the gain, the joy of gain. At the very same moment, is it possible? Well, for someone like Alan Lightman, who doesn't believe in anything immortal beyond time and space, it's confusing. 
It's disorienting. It's the cause of despair. In chapters 3 and 4 of Isaiah, God's work is both terrible and beautiful. His people experience extreme loss and extreme gain. We experience the same extremes in life today. It can be very confusing. It can be very disorienting. It can cause despair. But it can also produce something else. What is your hope in the midst of loss? What is your hope in the midst of loss? Something that every person to some degree has experienced or is experiencing in life right now. To answer this question, we're going to look at two realities. First, that your loss is not in vain. And second, that your gain cannot be lost. So let's start with your loss is not in vain. Chapter three, and we read portions of it. But if you read the entire chapter, it is a picture of horrific loss for God's people. It is the picture of the collapse of a society. In verse 1, there is shortage of bread and water. In verses 2 to 3, capable leadership collapses and falls apart. In verse 4, mature and capable leaders are replaced by irresponsible and immature leaders. In verse 5, we see the result of a failure of leadership. It's chaos and division in this society, in this community of God's people. And then in verses 6 to 7, the despair sets in because they look for some leader that will step up with courage to guide them, and there's no one willing to step up. It's a picture of anarchy, the absolute collapse of society. On top of that, we learn in verses 16 to 26 of chapter 3 that the wealth that God's people had, they had wealth, they had opulence, they had set their hopes on their wealth. Even their wealth comes crashing down. And not only does their wealth come crashing down, but they end up getting what they dreaded. Verse 24, the phrase instead of, appears five times in that one verse. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Everything they dreaded became a reality. Verse 26, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. In verse 1 of chapter 4, the women are left begging for someone to belong to. In verse 6 of chapter 3, the men are begging for some leader to come rescue them out of the chaos. This is a bad picture. 
They are suffering loss upon loss. But why? Why are they suffering this loss? Why is this society of God's people collapsing? Well, there's really two reasons. The first reason is in verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Or that can read, defying the eyes of his glory. They had functionally removed God from the center and put something else in the center. They had rejected God's presence and embraced the presence of another. But can this alone explain the collapse? I mean, this isn't something that happened overnight. This had been going on years and years with God's people. They had rejected God's presence. They had put other things in the center. This was going on for years, and they had been warned about it by the prophets, by Isaiah, by other prophets. And yet, over those many years, they didn't experience a collapse like this. So why suddenly, then, is there this collapse? Well, this brings us to the second and ultimate reason for their loss. And that is that God did it. That God did it. Verse one of chapter three, for behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. The Lord took it away. Uh, Verse 18 of chapter three, in that day, the Lord will take away. The Lord took away their leaders. He took away the authority structure that provided for a stable community. He took away their wealth that they were hoping in and setting their hopes on. He took it all away. They were suffering tremendous loss, and it was God who did it. It was God who was doing it. Let me explain this through the lens of our solar system. We live in a solar system where our planet and the other planets circle around the sun in an orderly fashion. And they do that because of the center. The sun is the gravitational center of our solar system. The center holds. That's why planets move in orderly fashion. That's why things aren't crashing into each other. Now, if you can just roll with me for a second and let me personify the solar system, the planets, If the earth were to say, I don't need the sun. I can do it on my own. I can be self-sufficient. What would happen? The earth would still move in an orderly fashion around the sun. Now what if the sun were to remove itself from the center? That'd be a different story, right? The earth and everything else would fall into chaos, crash into each other. It would be utter anarchy in the solar system. God's people had been defying his presence, the center, for years and years and years. 
And God, in his grace, had sustained them and stabilized them, even though they had rejected him from the center. But we learn in chapter 3 that it got to a point where God began to take away from them to intentionally destabilize them so that they would realize how much they needed him and what life would descend into if he took away and removed his grace. That phrase, take away, would be somewhat similar to what we read in Romans chapter 1 when it says God gave them over to their desires. God gave them what they wanted and intentionally destabilized them. That if in his grace he, re he removes himself from the center, so to speak, that life begins spinning out of control. Our world would be utter anarchy and chaos if God were to remove himself from the center. He is what stabilizes and sustains this world. It's what sustains you. And in chapter 3 of Isaiah, we see him removing, taking away to intentionally destabilize so they would see how much they needed him. And there's a similar prophetic warning to Isaiah's in the book of Revelation when Jesus Christ is speaking to his risen church. He says to the church at Ephesus in, in Revelation 2.5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove or take away your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, why would God do this? Why would God do this to his people in the Old Testament that Isaiah is prophesying about here? Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love. Those whom I love. Love, I reprove and discipline. God loves you so much that he would take away from you with great precision and great purpose. It was the most difficult and dangerous surgery that this surgeon had ever performed. The cancerous tumor was lodged right next to the spinal cord. The margin be be between horrific tragedy and life-saving beauty was razor thin. One little slip of the knife or one bad cut of the scalpel could have punctured, severed the spinal cord. But this cancerous tumor had to be removed. So this surgeon the night before went to bed early. He meticulously watched what he ate and drank that night and the next morning so that he would be alert and focused. When he got up the next morning prior to the surgery, 
he reviewed the scans and, and mentally in his mind, he went over exactly the steps he was gonna take to remove this tumor. He played it out. He practiced it in his mind and in his heart. He made sure the best nurses and the best assistants were with him that day in the operating room. He made sure he had the best operating room reserved, all the latest equipment. And then the surgery began. And when he took that scalpel to the side of the tumor that was right next to the spinal cord, he made a perfect cut that got rid of the tumor, but it didn't touch the spinal cord. He was focused, he was meticulous, and because of that, a life was saved. The tumor was removed, the life-sustaining spinal cord was left intact. When God removes something from your life, when he takes something away, when you experience loss, he does it with great precision and great care and great purpose. What is God taking away from you that you don't like, that he's taking it away? What loss are you experiencing what has he taken away in your life? God assures you that whatever he takes away, he does it with great precision and great purpose. It may feel like you're on the path towards horrific tragedy, but God assures you that you are on the path to life-saving beauty. Do you trust that God is taking something away from you for your good? Or are you fighting him? Are you fighting to keep it? Are you fighting to hold on to it? Trust him. Trust him that what he is taking away, he is taking away for your good, for his glory. What is your hope? What is your hope in the midst of loss? It's that your loss is not in vain. But second, your gain cannot be lost. God leads you into loss to enrich you with lasting gain. In verses two to six of chapter four, he doesn't give something back to his people because he's taken so much away. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I've taken so much away, I'm gonna give you something back. No, what we read in verses two to six of chapter four is that he creates something new that is far better than what he took away. Something new that is far better than what he took away. Verse two, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Now, what is the branch of the Lord? What's the fruit of the land? Well, in Isaiah 11, Isaiah will describe what the branch is. 
Isaiah 11.1, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is speaking of the Messiah, the Christ to come from the line of David. The branch of the Lord, the fruit of the land are metaphors of the Messiah, of the Christ. Now, what I want you to see here is the contrast of beauty that Isaiah is setting up. End of chapter three, Isaiah describes the arrogant wealth, opulence, and luxury of the people of Jerusalem. I mean, he describes this magnificent wealth that they had, this opulent wealth. And then in the beginning of chapter four, he describes the humble beauty of Jesus Christ. Just a branch. In fact, later in Isaiah 53, 2, this is how the beauty of Christ is described. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In that day means the day God steps foot into his world, which, is, which has happened once, it'll happen again. The first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And what Isaiah is saying here, and we read it in the Gospels, that when Jesus Christ stepped foot into this world, he did so in great humility. There was no flashy beauty about him that would attract the masses to him. He was a humble carpenter. And yet what Jesus does is replaces false beauty with true beauty. Verse two says, in that day, God's people would in this humble Messiah find their joy and their honor, their pride and their joy. Instead of all this opulent, wealthy beauty they were setting their hearts on, they would find Jesus Christ as their pride and joy. Jesus replaces false beauty with true beauty. There was a commercial that was produced years ago by Dove Soap. And they put together this commercial, it might have been a series of them, to challenge the, beauties, the beauty industry's fixation with finding the perfect woman. This commercial was called Evolution. And what happened is this, this very normal, humble woman with no makeup walks into a room and sits down. And they focus the camera on her face. And they begin showing uh, time-lapse pictures of what would be her makeover to turn her into a billboard model. And so the, the makeup artist started and they, they recreated her skin color and her tone to make her look just perfect. Then the, the hairstylist came in and they took her very just straight, shoulder-length blonde hair and they whipped it up into curls and blonde, wind-blown beauty. They finally get the picture. They took dozens of pictures and they finally found the one they chose. And then the com computer designers took over. So with this picture of the woman, they now make her neck longer. They make her eyes bigger, her cheeks thinner. 
And then the picture pans out, and you see her on a billboard advertising beauty products. And as the commercial comes to a close, these silent but powerful words flash on the screen. No wonder our perception of beauty is distorted. Why is our perception of beauty so distorted? I mean, Isaiah was right. He says, in that day, finally, they're going to recognize the true beauty of the Messiah. But then in Isaiah 53, he says, but when Jesus shows up, there's going to be no earthly beauty, no worldly beauty, no billboard models going to show up that the masses are going to be attracted to. In fact, they weren't attracted to him. They ended up hanging him on a cross between two common criminals. Why is our perception of beauty so distorted? Verse four. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, or the word there can mean purging, Sin, the bloodstain of sin, the filth of sin is what distorts our perception of beauty. If you go to Yosemite Valley in California, you'll see one of the beautiful parts of God's creation. But to get to it, you go through a tunnel that when you come out the other side of the tunnel, the whole valley opens up to you. So you see El Capitan and Half Dome and Cathedral Rock. But on some days when you come out of this tunnel, this tunnel, there's a fog. Instead of seeing this amazing, breathtaking view, you see gray, thick, soupy fog. And so instead of staring at the fog, your gaze drops down to your phone and you begin surfing the internet. If you can't see the breathtaking view, then you find something else that's going to take your breath away. You and I are made for beauty. We're made for beauty. We're made to see beauty. We're made to embrace beauty. But sin has fogged our view, distorted our view, so that we look to other things to find that beauty. We look to lesser beauties. False beauties because we can't see the true picture of beauty. The spirit of purging, the spirit of judgment that Isaiah speaks about is the work of Christ. Christ came to remove your sin, to remove the fog so that you could see him, which is true beauty. He took judgment upon himself to purge, that spirit of purging, to purge your sin, to purge the fog. So what opens up is a beautiful picture of what your heart needs and longs for, which is the true beauty of Christ. Now, when sin is removed and the fog's lifted and you see that glorious picture of beauty, what do you see? What is it? Look at verse five. 
Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy. What's the cloud by day? What's the smoke and fire by night? Well, in Exodus 40, we see this cloud, this smoke fill the tabernacle. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we see the glory of God fill the temple with smoke and fire. These are, in the Old Testament, when there's cloud, when there's smoke, when there's fire, these are what are called theophanies. It's, it's the presence of God manifested visibly. Now, you may say, goodness, I would love to have that happen today. If I could just have, if smoke could just start filling this room and it not be a fire. If smoke could start filling this room, you know, or, or, or some, a pillar of fire, boy, then maybe I'd believe. We've got something much greater than what God's people had in Isaiah's day. God doesn't manifest himself through smoke and fire today. He's manifested himself in the flesh, in a person, in Jesus Christ. We have something far better. And the Holy Spirit takes Christ and causes him to dwell in our hearts so that true beauty actually lives in us and through us. This description of God's glorious presence manifested in Christ over you and in you is described powerfully at the end of verse five. End of verse five, for all the glory, all this glorious presence of God will be a canopy. Say, what's a canopy? What's the canopy? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, the canopy always refers to the marriage chamber. I'll give you an example in Joel chapter two, verse 16. Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. That word chamber in the Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, is the same exact word that gets translated canopy in verse five of Isaiah 4, wed to Christ. Being wed to Christ, being one with Christ, being one with the true beauty that you, your heart, your life needs. And so what God says is to you, I am glad to take away. I am glad to take away what is threatening your marriage or your oneness with Christ. That's how this all ties together. When, when we say your loss is not in vain, when God talks about the, the, the purpose and the precision behind what he takes away, he is taking it away so that you can see Christ more clearly. And whatever that is, that fog that is threatening your oneness with Christ or your marriage to Christ, he is more than happy to take that away so that you can see Christ so that you can gain Christ. God is glad to take away what you think is beautiful to give you what is truly 
beautiful. And that is Jesus Christ, whom you need. He takes away that which is blocking your view of his glorious presence. The mausoleum of Gala Placidia is in Italy. It's actually a a very well-known mosaic monument. Beautiful. It was built 1,500 years ago by the emperor of Rome. And he built this small building as a tomb for his beloved sister. It's built in the shape of a cross, and then there's this this dome over top of it that has beautiful mosaics in it. And there's this beautiful mosaic a depiction of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, with sheep around him, resting contently, you know, with all contentment around him in this emerald paradise. It's absolutely gorgeous. The problem is, is that most visitors that look in the travel books and they see this mausoleum and they see this beautiful mosaic and they go, we're gonna go see that, When they arrive and they enter the mausoleum, they're incredibly disappointed because this building only has a few tiny windows. And because of that, not much light enters into it, and any light that does get into it is is covered up by the mass of tourists in the building. And so visitors become impatient, can't really see anything. The, The beauty of this vision of Christ with the sheep around him in this emerald paradise, this beautiful vision sits behind darkness. It sits veiled. And so the impatient tend to just move on. But the ones that stay long enough end up seeing this stunning unveiling. Without advance notice, Spotlights will turn on and shine onto this beautiful mosaic. And it happens when a visitor happens to drop a coin in a small metal box along the wall. Now, every illustration breaks down, okay? So they're paying to see this vision, right? But the point is, when the light, the spotlight turns on, it only turns on for a few seconds, and then it dies again. It goes dark again. One visitor describe the experience of being in there and being disappointed, but then seeing the spotlights come on for just a few seconds. This is what they said. The lights come on for a brief moment, the briefest of moments. The eye doesn't have time to take it all in. The eye casts about. The dull, hot darkness overhead becomes a starry sky, a dark blue cupola with huge shimmering stars that that seem startlingly close, ah, comes the sound from those that are down below looking. And then the light goes out. And again, there's darkness, darker even than before. This illumination happens repeatedly, but in between are these long, unpredictable lengths of darkness. But when those lights turn on, When the lights turn on, the people get to see the world behind the shadows. So often we associate loss with darkness. If you don't believe 
in anything immortal beyond time and space, like Alan Lightman, the person I opened with, then loss is darkness. It's disorienting. It causes despair. It's confusing. But God uses darkness or uses loss to bring light to the darkness. God takes away from you or he removes something to turn the light on to his glorious presence in Jesus Christ. And so in God's world, in God's wisdom, and, and as a follower of Christ, you understand that loss is brought about by God with great precision and great purpose to turn the lights on in your heart, to turn the lights on to his glorious presence, to turn the lights on to Jesus Christ. So what is God taking away from you? What has God taken away from you? He's done so with great purpose. He's done so with great precision. He's done it to awaken your heart, to turn the lights on to his glorious presence, to Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we're all acquainted with loss. We live in a broken world. For some of us, that loss is right now. For some of us, that loss maybe happened in the past. But Father, we confess that we don't like it. We don't like when stuff's taken away. And we confess that we're fighting you over it. Maybe not consciously, but there's this Deep in our souls, there's this fighting and battling against what you're doing to take away, to remove, so that you can reveal Christ and unite us to him and his beauty and replace our false beauty with true beauty. We confess that we're fighting you. And Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring us to a place of surrender that we would believe that what you are taking away or what you have taken away has been done with great purpose and that our eyes would be opened to the glory of Jesus Christ, knowing that the day of the Lord has come once, it's coming again, and that our joy will come from Christ for eternity. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the wisdom and the grace to surrender to not fight, to embrace what you have taken away, to embrace Christ as you're taking things away. Father, we love you and pray as we worship now that you would center our hearts on the center of this universe and that is you and your son Jesus and on your throne. We pray this all in his name, amen.